Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. La Health is everything. Hi, this is Dr. Charles Raison. I'm a psychiatrist and research scientist, and you're listening to Health is Everything, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. And today my guest is Marin McKenna, who is a journalist and author focusing on public health, global health, food policy. She's also a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory. Hi, Marin. Hello. It must be quite a thing to be an author and journalist working you know, in all those, public health especially, perhaps, but with what's going on with food production, food production too. These must be wild times for you. Yeah, uh, they are. So I have been... As a journalist, writing about going to epidemics and pandemics for most of my working life. And for most of my working life, I have been writing about the possibility that we would someday experience a globe spanning epidemic. And now it's here. And it is both weirdly familiar because of the past predictive work I did, and also completely jarring to, to actually have this unspooling in front of my eyes. So if you've been working on this for years and years, what, why now that it's come, is it jarring? Well, it's jarring partly because so much has gone sort of according to the script isn't exactly the correct word, but according to the predictions that various public health authorities and researchers had made over the years, that a pathogen that took us by surprise would emerge from the interface between humans and the wild world, that it would spread across travel networks faster than we could keep up with it, Mm -hmm. that we would not have adequately prepared. I I myself, two years ago, I wrote a piece for Wired predicting that supply chains for medical equipment would break because we had allowed almost all the manufacturing to drift offshore because that was less expensive. And one of the first things that happened in this pandemic was people saying, we are running out of masks and personal protective equipment for health workers. That is my story from two years ago. So all of that has been, you know, it's, it's like all of this was war gamed by varieties of think tanks and researchers and predicted by journalists. And now it's here and it conforms so closely to those models that it is unnerving. Well, I mean, the obvious question is, so we knew all this, and obviously we didn't do anything about it or pay any attention to it. Why? You know, as a society and as a species, we are so focused on the short term. Uh, We do, we make decisions that make sense in the immediate moment, and we don't plan for tomorrow. So in the case of masks and personal protective equipment, for instance, the decision to not make things in the United States made rational economic sense at the time because the primary driver of that decision was to maximize profit, minimize spending. And labor is much cheaper in China and elsewhere on the Pacific Rim and in Mexico where some of our masks and protective equipment is made. No one thought to say, maybe it is worth spending more now to ensure that we have that supply then because having that supply then would would require spending that wouldn't adequately be justified by the current moment. You know, coalitions of people in public health have been saying, 
oh, since at least the 2009 flu, what we need is a permanent pandemic fund, a pandemic, not investment fund, but a, a pandemic preparation fund, money that sits there that is ready for when we need surge capacity to respond to an international epidemic. They, they said it in 2009. They said it in the two, 2014 Ebola outbreak. There's been conversations about it and op-eds about it periodically for the past five years. We never created it. We could have used it in the past three months. Absolutely. It's interesting, isn't it, that we're willing to spend a whole bunch of money on departments of defense against other human beings, billions of dollars a year, that that don't tend to produce wars often enough to justify their their um, you know expense, and yet we don't seem to have the same capacity to invest in you know this sort of other defense, right? Which is it's uh, but it's it's odd, isn't it? You know, so I kind of have a, a hobbyist interest in something called behavioral immunology, which is sort of that a lot of it is that humans have these really powerfully evolved behavioral mechanisms, emotions to detect infection, avoid infection, how infections change the way cultures operate. It, it's such a paradigm because you know we're sort of completely ignoring it until it hits one of the things i'm interested in is the gap between how terrified we became when it all of a sudden came here versus how not terrified we were when it was a bunch of folks over in china dying and i'm curious i mean how does that fit into sort of the work you've done this like like when you know when does it go from zero to 60 and why we, we sort of, we like the concept of the monster under the bed, the thing that frightens us. It's, it's why we like horror movies. It's why through the second half of the 20th century, there was an enduring market for sort of scary disease books. So long as the threat is sufficiently remote from us, we in some ways sort of luxuriate in being safely frightened. So when something, my, my translation of that to the real world is that when a fast-moving disease occurs somewhere that seems to be safely far away enough from us, whether it's China or sub-Saharan Africa, we are content to consume the news of that and not feel particularly either frightened by it or motivated by it because it's somewhere else. In an area of such rapid travel, there really is no somewhere else. Yeah. You know, SARS, and this is going back 17 years, went around the world in a week compared to the 1918 flu, which took about 11 months to circle the, the globe because at the time trains and steamships were as fast as you could travel. I thought it was really interesting that uh, here in Georgia, people took pr collective protective action in advance of any government yeah. instruction to do so. So here in Atlanta, which had a stay-at-home order before the state of Georgia did by, I think, several weeks, schools closed, restaurants closed, people started voluntarily socially distancing before the government told them to do so. Now, that might have been fright, and it might have been uncertainty, but you know, there, there is an interesting strand of scholarship that says that as much as we have this idea that in disasters, people tear each other to bits, that in fact, what happens is the reverse of that, that, it, that in disasters, people actually self-assemble into communities. Now, that's obviously not uniform. You only have to look at the rallies that occurred in Ohio and Michigan in which people came out and assailed uh, the, the seats of government in those states, uh, gathering in mobs in front of courts and offices to insist that they were not going to be socially distanced, to see that this 
embrace of communitarianism is not a universal response. Um, that's pretty scary, actually. Uh, it will be scary if uh, the risk of infection becomes a, a thing that lines up along political lines. I've got a distant distant connection, a family member who, very prominent person actually, in New York City of all places, who just absolutely dismissed all this as being politically motivated and et cetera, et cetera. Then his wife got sick. And it is, it's an amazing thing to see the, the, the transition as it got closer and closer, right? You know, and it's interesting to watch this sort of then whoosh, exactly we were sort of talking about what the, what the, the country's done at large, this sort of complete reversal now into complete isolated terror mode. It's interesting. It, it's not an all opportunity killer. I, I saw this interesting article about that. In fact, that, that it's targeting, you know, disproportionately disadvantaged folks. So there is this sort of interesting political aspect to it, but not the one I think that causes people to come to rallies perhaps. There's a, a map that came out from the New York City Health Department of incidents of COVID by neighborhood. Yeah. And the the neighborhoods that are most lit up are very clearly neighborhoods where people have to commute to do their jobs. So the Upper East Side of Manhattan, the incidence is pretty good. The, the lower income neighborhoods of Brooklyn, the yeah. incident is really bad. And the yeah. reason is because people people are in multi-generational housing, they're in fairly small housing, and also they, they have to get on transit to go somewhere to earn money. They do not have the luxury of staying home and waiting for Instacart to arrive. It, it looks like the transmission mode ideas are gradually shifting. Like, I, I, you know, the, I've heard, I, I saw, again, a sort of article, I think it was in the Times yesterday, that that really it looks like the droplets and things spread further, last longer, and that the, the touch business, while relevant, may not be as relevant. So, I mean, that would explain why if you have to get on a subway car, even if somebody was 10 feet away from you, you're going to be more at risk than you know, touching, perhaps touching something in a grocery store. So I think that that's, you know, because your, your, your comment that, that, you know, we'll see that it spread around the world, kaboom, like that, that, that's really, you need, you need air, you need a lot. I mean, for that to go at that speed, I think that it has to be right, much more transmissible. Um, I, you know, I think we just don't have enough science yet to know. Um, again, this is only, you know, at the, at the outside four months old now, there, there may have been circulation in, and cases in China in December, possibly mm. in November. It, this is very like the original SARS in that way, and that there was stuff in China that was probably not either not recorded or not admitted to. Yeah. But the but but the outbreak outside China yeah. really only begins in January. So now we're in the middle of April, amazingly, yeah. and so. <sighs> So that and no, not that many people were doing coronavirus science before then, right? There were some, right. but but there's not a huge research core. So we mm. are doing a lot of extrapolating from a relatively small research base. Although the research base now is growing at a, a ferocious like, exponential point, the number of papers being published on this epidemic was doubling every 14 days. I'm sure it's a shorter doubling time now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some of the this is just to say that some of the papers that have been circulated about what's the transmission, the reasonable transmission distance, you know, is it, is it droplets? Is it three feet? Is it six feet? Mm. Is it 13 feet? Is it a plume of 50 feet? Um, some of them have been only under laboratory conditions uh, and they don't, um, they don't actually reproduce real world. And some of them have been just plain speculation. The one that sort of that got everyone 
so exercised a couple of days ago, or perhaps it was last week, about how we shouldn't let people walk, uh, run, or bike in public because they set up a plume behind them. Turns out yep. not to have been on a based on a paper at all. It was based on a post at Medium. Really, that someone wrote saying, uh, uh, "These are my ideas, and and I'm going to write a paper about it later, but I want to get this out there right away." Well, you know, mm. the fact that we are all alarmed, and the fact that that news is moving fast. In, in my view, it does not exempt us from the obligation to pay attention to the evidence. And if yeah. there isn't evidence, then we should be very careful about what it is that we are circulating. Because there's a, you know, we are, we are subject to sort of, you know, as much as we're subject to infection by pathogens, mm-hmm. we're also subject to infection by bad information. So I remember back in, oh, I don't know, February, probably when this was blowing up in China, you know, having discussions that, well, more people smoke there, you know, they're not as healthy They're you know, and, eh, you know, in the United States, if it comes here, the death rate will be, you know, a third, a quarter, whatever of what it is there, you know, it, 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 it I have such, I feel like, you know, cover my head now to think about how I had this whole little sort of narrative of denial going in my mind. That, that's really quite, again, it's just quite amazing the, the the difference between that sort of kind of lazy fair whatever, you know, that we had and then the, you know, the kaboom when you see the the dead bodies, you know, in the morgue and uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's really crazy. You know, I, I don't mean to be flippant, but uh, first world exceptionalism is a hell of a drug. Technologically, possibly we do have the best healthcare system on the planet, but in terms of... No. Uh, forcing our our populace to co- bear the cost of it, we are no, you know, we're, no. we 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 are notable only for how badly we organize healthcare and how much we force people to pay for things that other countries figure out how to pay for routinely. So, and we don't, in fact, have very good health status. Our maternal mortality rate is terrible. It's yeah. we're not, you know, we're we're something like the 44th best in the world. Uh, you know, our rates of smoking are still high, of obesity are still high, and uh, that we have those those enduring chronic diseases yeah. in our society gives us a whole raft of, of um, you know, of uh, pre-existing conditions that are going to make people really vulnerable if and when this disease gets to them. Well, th- that's right. I mean, this is a terrible time to have another disease. Is it the case that this would always be so in in any kind of time frame we could imagine that whenever the next one of these pops up, that there's just no way to get vaccine development fast enough to do anything about a first wave or two of one of these rapidly moving um, pandemics so that vaccines are just never going to be players in what we in- initially have to do? Well, the way to gin up a vaccine rapidly in an emergency is to have done the basic work on the vaccine before the emergency starts. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this is a this is an uh, an issue of forward thinking and forward funding. So the reason why in 2009 we were able to get a flu vaccine within a couple of months, I would have to go back and look, maybe four or five months, six months of when things started in April 2009 is because the flu vaccine is unlike all other vaccines. It is kind of like a cassette player, right? Like there's there's the machinery of the cassette player and then there's the tape that you plug in and take out. Yeah. That that background machinery doesn't change from year to year. We just change the cassette. And that means that 
though flu vaccine manufacturing isn't fast, every year we just barely get it done in time for the flu season from, you know, starting in the designation of the strains in February to starting to deliver it in September or October. But it cuts by the time that it takes to produce a vaccine from anywhere from a half to a third than if we were starting de novo. It also doesn't have to be freshly trialed and licensed every year, precisely because we're just plugging that cassette in. But a novel coronavirus vaccine yeah. It is is because we are starting from scratch. There there were no candidate coronavirus vaccines anywhere on the shelf. No one had done the preliminary work because why should they? SARS yeah. was 17 years ago. Since no one did that, we are looking at a full de novo vaccine creation and rollout that will take 12 to 18 months if we are fortunate. Man. So what do you think... Where do you think it's going to go? Do you have, you know, I mean, everybody who stares in the crystal ball for the future, but what do you think is going to happen over the next year? Do you have a sense of how this is all going to play out? Again, we're talking about a novel, a novel organism in an outbreak that for the most part is only four months old. And though the science is moving fast, it's not moving that fast. You know, an early hope has been that maybe this was, this would be a virus that has some seasonality to it in the way, for instance, that some cold viruses do. And some, some cold viruses are coronaviruses, though not this coronavirus, that essentially cold activity um, and, and flu activity damps down in the summers because the rising humidity or rising temperature is less friendly to the survival of the virus. Unfortunately, some of the outbreaks of coronavirus happening right now are happening in places that are super warm and super humid already. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if it's if it's doing fine in Hong Kong and it's doing fine in Singapore, where it's 80 degrees and raining every day all around yeah. the year, then there's no particular reason to think that it's a virus that has seasonality to it, yeah. which means that that the the outcome of summer probably isn't going to help us all that much. Mm-hmm. Um one of the things that I think is really interesting and, um, you know, our, the complete failure of our testing program is making this hard to figure out is we really don't know how many people have already been infected, especially have been infected asymptomatically. The, one of the really big questions that will only be answered by antibody testing, immunity testing, is um, how many people have already been infected? Uh, was it, is it, you know, is the people who, who, um, were infected with a sufficient dose to mount an immune response, but never had, never showed symptoms. Is it one out of ten? Is it is it ninety nine out of a hundred? You know, if there's a if there's a sufficiently protected core of people, the progress of the virus through the population to create herd immunity is going to look different than maybe what we think it looks like right now when we're assuming that not that many people are immune. We also don't know how do, you know what duration of immunity there is. Does this does this virus actually create durable immunity? Is it immunity for a week, a month, 3 months, a year, your life? Um, you know, all, none of that has been determined. All of the experimental models for that are just being built. So I I think you know, humans are really bad at living with uncertainty. Um, an awful lot of the things we do that, you know, sort of our superstitions are, and, um, and our, our patterns of living, our ways of protecting ourselves from uncertainty and comforting ourselves at sort of from defending ourselves from existential terror. We don't, we, we just don't know. Uh, I think uh, anyone, I am distrustful of anyone who says they are absolutely certain of most things with regard to coronavirus right now, because I think the evidence just isn't there. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a key question. Thank you. Uh, we're out of time, but that was, man, what a tour de force. I, I'm going to get you back on to talk about uh, antibiotics. And, uh, I would be bacteria. happy to do that. Oh, yeah, my that's obsession. a little, yeah, my obsession too. So thank you, Marin. It was great talking to you and, uh, you know, stay healthy. And uh, like I say, we'll come back the and talk you. about Wash the other. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. Health is everything. Thank you for listening to Health is Everything. You know, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, or rate it on Apple Podcasts. Now, you can follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory CSHH on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Dr. Charles Raison, wishing you the best of health.